Chapter 17, Part 7 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 17, Part 7. The Conquest of Syria. It might seem that the course plainly marked out for the victor of Issus was to pursue and overwhelm Darius before he should have time to collect another army, and this is what Darius himself would have done if he had been Alexander. But it would have been a strategical error to plunge into the heart of the Persian Empire, leaving Syria and Egypt unsubdued behind him and a Persian fleet controlling the coast. The victory of Issus did not seduce Alexander into swerving from his inevitable course. The strategic value of that victory was simply that it opened the gates to Syria and Egypt, as the subjugation of Asia Minor was the strategic condition of subjugating Syria and Egypt, so the conquest of Syria and Egypt was the strategic condition of conquering Mesopotamia and Iran. It was the more imperative to follow this logical course of conquest since Phoenicia supplied the main part of the hostile navy, and nothing but the reduction of the Phoenician towns would effectually break down the sea power of Persia. No one could swoop more swiftly than Alexander when it was the hour to swoop, but never did he display his superior command of the art of war more signally than when he let the royal prey escape him and quietly carried out the plan of conquest which he had predestined. The Persian kings had allowed the Phoenician traders to go on their own way, and meddled little with their prosperous cities, so long as the Phoenician navy was at their disposal of Persia. If these strong and wealthy semi-insular cities of the coast, cut off as they were from the inner country by the high range of Lebanon, had formed a solid federal union, they might have easily succeeded in winning complete independence in the days of Persian decadence. But though Tyre, Sidon and Aradus were bound together by a federal bond, their commercial interests clashed, and their jealousies prevented a hearty national effort. This had been illustrated by a recent experience, when Sidon had revolted from Persia in the reign of Artaxerxes Ochus, her two sister cities promised at a federal meeting to stand by her. But both Tyre and Aradus selfishly calculated that if Sidon were crushed and punished, her trade would come to themselves and they left her to maintain the struggle alone. She succumbed to the power of Ochus, her town was burnt down, and she lost her rights as a city. The divisions which prevented the Phoenicians from becoming a nation were profitable to Alexander. If their united fleet, which was now acting ineffectually in Aegean waters, had acted energetically in defense of their own coast against the Macedonian, their cities would have been impregnable even to Alexander. But those cities could not trust each other. Bibulus, which in some measure had taken the place of Sidon, and Aridus sent their submission to the conqueror of Issus, while dismantled Sidon, which still contributed some ships to the fleet, hoped to be reinstated in her old position by the favor of Persia's foe. Her hope was not disappointed. Alexander restored Sidon to her constitution and her territory. It cannot have been long after this that a kingling of Sidon, was laid in a resting place worthy of the great conqueror himself. His sculptured sarcophagus, recently dug up in a burying ground in the Sidonian kings, is one of the most beautiful achievements of Greek art. 
but we may well associate this monument with Alexander rather than the obscure Phoenician for whose ashes it was made. For in two of the vivid scenes which are represented in colored relief upon its sides, Alexander appears on horseback. One of these is a passage from the Battle of Issus. There is a melee in the center. The king charges on this side. A general, perhaps Parmenio, on that. The other scene is a lion hunt. And here, if Alexander were not marked out by the royal fillet, we might almost recognize him by his eager, straining face. Alexander advanced southwards towards Tyre. Ambassadors from this city met him on the road, professing the readiness of the Tyrians to do his will. Alexander expressed his intention of visiting the city in order to sacrifice in the famous temple of Heracles, but a Macedonian visit was far from the wish of the men of Tyre. Persia was not yet subdued, and their policy was to await the event and avoid compromising themselves by a premature adhesion to Macedonia. They felt secure on their island rock, which was protected by eighty ships, apart from the squadron which was absent in the Aegean. Accordingly, they invited Alexander to sacrifice in Old Tyre, on the mainland, but refused to receive either Persian or Macedonian into the city. To subdue Tyre was an absolute necessity, as Alexander explained to a council of his generals and captains, which he called together. It was not safe to advance to Egypt, or to pursue Darius, while the Persians were lords of the sea, and the only way of wresting their sea power from them was to capture Tyre, the most important naval station on the coast. Once Tyre fell, the Phoenician fleet, which was the most numerous and strongest part of the Persian navy, would come over to Macedon, for the rowers would not row, or the men fight, when they had no habitations to row or fight for. The reduction of Cyprus and Egypt would then follow without trouble. Alexander grasped and never let go the fact that Tyre was the key to the whole situation. It was easy to say that Tyre must be captured, but it was not easy to say how, without a powerful navy, its capture could be achieved. This was perhaps the hardest military task that Alexander's genius ever encountered. The city, girt by walls of great height and magnificently strong masonry, stood on an island severed from the continent by a sound of more than half a mile in width. On the face which faced the mainland were the two harbors, the northern or Sidonian harbor with a narrow mouth, and the southern or Egyptian. It might seem utterly hopeless for an enemy, vastly inferior at sea, to attempt a siege of the island rock. And in truth there was only one way for a land power to set about the task. Those thousand yards of water must be bridged over, and the isle annexed to the mainland. Without hesitation, Alexander began the building of the causeway. The first part of the work was easy, for the water was shallow, but when the mole approached the island, the strait deepened, and the workmen came within range of the walls, and the difficulties of the task began. Triremes issued from the havens on either side to shoot missiles at the men who were at work. To protect them, Alexander erected two towers on the causeway, and mounted engines on the towers to reply to the missiles from the galleys. He attached to those wooden towers curtains of leather, to screen both towers and workmen from the projectiles which were hurled from the city walls. But the men of Tyre were ingenious. They constructed a fire-ship filled with dry wood and inflammables, and choosing a day on which a favorable wind blow, they towed it close to the dam and set it on fire. The device succeeded. The burning vessel soon wrapped the towers and all the engines in flames, 
and the triremes which had towed it up discharged showers of darts at the Macedonians who attempted to extinguish the fire. The Tyrians, too, rowed across from their island in boats and tore up the stakes at the unfinished part of the mole. Undismayed by this disaster, which seemed to show the hopelessness of the enterprise, Alexander only went to work more vigorously. It was necessary to take Tyre, and he was determined that Tyre should be taken. He widened the causeway throughout its whole length, so that it could accommodate more towers and engines before he attempted to complete it. He saw that it would be needful to support his operations from the causeway by operations from shipboard, and he went to Sidon to bring up a few galleys which were stationed there. But at this moment the aspect of affairs was suddenly changed by the accession to Alexander of naval forces which enabled him to cope with Tyre at an advantage on her own element. The squadrons of Aridus and Bibulus, which were acting in the Aegean, learning that their cities had submitted to Alexander, left the fleet and sailed to Sidon, which the Macedonians had chosen as their naval station. These Phoenician ships were about eighty, and at the same time there came nine galleys from Rhodes, and ten from Lycia and Cilicia. The adhesion of the kings of Cyprus presently followed, and reinforced the fleet at Sidon by a hundred and twenty ships. With a fleet of about two hundred and fifty triremes at his command, Alexander was now far stronger at sea than the merchants of Tyre and though the siege of the mighty stronghold was still a formidable task, it was no longer superhuman. While the fleet was being made ready in the roads of Sidon, and the engineers were fabricating new siege engines to batter down the walls of Tyre, Alexander made an expedition at the head of his light troops to punish the native brigands who infested the hills of anti-Lebanon, and made the traffic between the coast and the hinterland unsafe. Perhaps it was now that he received an embassy from the great king, offering an immense ransom for the captives of the royal house, and the surrender of all the lands west of the Euphrates, proposing that Alexander should marry the daughter of Darius and become his ally. The message was discussed in a council, and Parmenio said that if he were Alexander, he would accept the terms. And I, said the king, would accept them if I were Parmenio. Alexander was resolved to carry out his plan of conquest to the end. He would agree to no compromise. He bade the ambassadors say that he would receive neither money nor provinces in lieu of the whole empire of Darius, for that all the land and possessions of Darius were his. He would marry the daughter of Darius if he chose, whether Darius willed it or not, and if Darius wished for any boon, he must come himself and ask for it. From Sidon, Alexander bore down upon Tyre with his own fleet, hoping to entice the Tyrians into an engagement. He commanded the right wing, while the left was committed to the charge of Craterus and Pintagoras, the king of Cypriot Salamis. When this fleet hove in sight, the men of Tyre were astonished and dismayed. Before, they would have gladly given battle, but they saw that they had no chance against so many, and they drew up their triremes in close array to block the mouths of their harbors. Alexander set the Cyprian vessels on the north side of the mole to blockade the Sidonian harbor, and the Phoenician on the south side to blockade the Egyptian harbor. It was opposite this harbor on the mainland that his own pavilion was placed. The mole had now been carried up to the island, and engineers, the best that Phoenicia and Cyprus could furnish, had prepared the engines of war. All was ready for a grand attack on the eastern wall. Some of the engines were placed on the mole, others on transport ships or superannuated galleys. But little impression was made on the wall, 
which on this side was one hundred and fifty feet high and enormously thick, and the besieged replied to the attack with volleys of fiery missiles from powerful engines which were mounted on their lofty battlements. Moreover, the machine-bearing vessels could not come close enough to the walls for effective action. Huge stones lying under the water hindered their approach. Alexander decided that these must at all costs be removed, and galleys with windlasses were anchored at the spot in order to drag the boulders away. It was a slow task, and was thwarted by the Tyrians. Covered vessels shot out of the havens and cut the anchor ropes of the galleys, so that they drifted away. Alexander tried to meet this by placing boats similarly decked close to the anchors, but even this failed, since Tyrian divers swam under water and cut the cables. The only resource was to attach the anchors with chains instead of ropes, and by this means the stones were hauled away and the ships could approach the wall. The Tyrians now resorted to a last device. They spread the sails of all the ships which were riding at the entrance of the northern harbor, and behind this curtain of canvas which screened them from the observation of the enemy, they manned seven triremes, three five-oared and three four-oared boats, with the coolest and bravest of their seamen, and waiting for the hour of noon, when the sailors of the besieging vessels used generally to disembark, and Alexander himself used to retire to his tent, they rowed noiselessly toward the Scipian squadron, which was taken completely by surprise, sank some of the vessels at once, and drove the rest on the strand. It happened that on this day Alexander remained for a shorter time than usual in his pavilion, and when he returned to his station with the Phoenician ships on the south side of the mole, discovering what had happened, he stationed the main part of those ships close to the Egyptian harbor to prevent the enemy from making any movement on his side, and taking with him some five-oared boats and five swift-sailing galleys, sailed around the island. The men in the city saw Alexander and all that he did, and signaled to their own vessels who were engaged in battering the stranded Cyprian vessels. But the signals were not seen or heard until Alexander was close upon them. When they saw him coming, they desisted from their work and made all speed for the haven. But the greater number of their boats were disabled by Alexander's vessels before they reached the harbor mouth. Henceforward, the ships of Tyre lay useless in the harbors, unable to do anything for the defense of the island. It was now a struggle between the engineers of Tyre and the engineers of Alexander. The wall opposite to the mole defied all machines of battery and methods of assault, and the northern part of the same eastern wall, though the big stones had been cleared away from the water below it, proved equally impracticable. Accordingly, the efforts of the besiegers were united upon the south wall near the Egyptian harbor. Here at length a bit of the wall was torn down, and there was fighting in the breach, but the Tyrians easily repelled the attack. It was an encouragement for Alexander, it showed him the weak spot, and two days later he prepared a grand and supreme assault. The vessels with the siege engines were set to work at the southern wall, while two triremes waited hard by, one filled with hypastus under Admetus the other with a phalanx regiment ready as soon as the wall yielded to hurl their crews into the breach. Ships were stationed in front of the two havens to force their way in at a favorable moment, and the rest of the fleet, manned with light troops and furnished with engines, were disposed at various points round the island to embarrass and bewilder the besieged and hinder them from concentrating at the main point of attack. A wide breach was made, two triremes were rowed up to the spot, the bridges were lowered, and the hypastus Admetus at their head, first mounted the wall. Admetus was pierced with a lance, 
but Alexander took his place and drove back the Tyrians from the breach. Tower after tower was captured. Soon all the southern wall was in the hands of the Macedonians, and Alexander was able to make his way along the battlements to the royal palace, which was the best base for attacking the city. But the city had already been entered from other points. The chains of both the Sidonian and the Egyptian harbors had been burst by the Cyprian and Phoenician squadrons. The Tyrian ships had been disabled, and the troops had pressed into the town. The inhabitants made their last stand in a place called the Agonorian. Eight thousand are said to have been slain, and the rest of the people, about thirty thousand, were sold into slavery, with the exception of the king, as in Milko, and a few other men of high position, who were set at liberty. The siege had been long and wearisome, but the time and the labor were not too dear a price. The fall of Tyre gave Alexander Syria and Egypt, and the naval superiority in the eastern half of the Mediterranean. He performed the sacrifice of Heracles in the temple to which the Tyrians had refused him access, and celebrated the solemnity with a torch procession and games. The communities of Syria and Palestine that had not submitted, like Damascus after the victory of Issus, submitted now after the capture of Tyre, and he encountered no resistance in his southern march to Egypt, until he came to the great frontier stronghold, Gaza, the city of the Philistines. Girt with a stout wall, Gaza stood on a high-rising ground, and more than two miles of sand lie between the city and the seashore, so that a fleet was no hope to a besieger. The place had been committed by Darius to the care of Batis, a trusty eunuch, who had been well furnished with provisions for a long siege. Batis refused to surrender, trusting in the strength of the fortifications, and at the first sight the engineers of Alexander declared that the wall could never be stormed on account of the height of the hill on which it stood. But Alexander was now accustomed to overcome the insuperable, and the conqueror who had sacked Tyre was not ready to turn away from the walls of Gaza. He could not leave such an important post on the line from Damascus to Egypt in the hands of the enemy. He ordered ramparts to be thrown up round the city, in order that the siege engines mounted on this elevation might be on a level with the wall. The best chance seemed to be on the south side, and here the work was pushing on rapidly. When the engines were placed in position, Alexander offered a sacrifice, and a bird of prey flying over the altar dropped a stone on the king's garland head. The soothsayer interpreted the meaning of this signed, O king, you will take the city, but you must take good heed for your own safety on this day. Alexander was cautious for a while, but when the besieged sallied forth from the gates and attacked the Macedonians who were working the engines on the ramparts and pressed them hard, he rushed to their aid and was wounded in the shoulder by a dart from a catapult. Thus part of the sign had come true. The other part was in time fulfilled. The engines which had been used in the siege of Tyre arrived by sea. The rampart was widened and raised to a greater height, and undermound mines were dug beneath the walls. The walls yielded in many places to the mines and the engines, but it was not till the fourth attack that the Macedonians succeeded in scaling the breaches and entering the city. The slaughter was greater than entire. The women and children were sold into bondage, and the place became a Macedonian fortress. End of chapter 17, part 7